What is that little extra thing that makes the ordinary extraordinary? I believe it is the presence of God. At Christmas, God came into our ordinary world in the form of a child. In this season of hope and anticipation, as we eagerly await Christ's birth and Christ's return, God is still at work in and through the ordinary stuff of life. This Advent season at Second Presbyterian, we will begin a sermon series titled Advent in Plain Sight. Roughly based on a devotional written by Jill Duffield, we will connect everyday objects with the biblical text and find holy meaning and holy moments. We hope this Advent season will be an extraordinary one that allows us all to see God in and through ordinary things. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that as we receive your word, that our hearts might be joined to yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It'll be a while before I read our passage. My sermon is about tears, and our passage is just one of many that I'll talk about. Tears. I went to medical websites and learned about tears, what we basically already know. We weep for good physical and psychological reasons. Healthy weeping, not all weeping is healthy or productive, but healthy weeping serves as both a valve and a salve. As a valve, tears release emotions. As a salve, tears heal psyches. Because tears relieve internal stress, repressing tears has been linked to a weakened immune system, an inability to cope, and even cardiovascular disease. Psychologically, weeping releases not only emotions, but endorphins, which help bring the one in tears to a better sense of well-being. People who think that you have to be either emotional or rational just don't get it. Healthy weeping can be the way for better thinking. Oh, and let's not forget a basic function of washing and lubricating eyes. The most interesting thing, though, about tears is that we human beings are the only species that shed them. If you were looking for a physical characteristic or a list, or you were going to make a list of physical characteristics about what makes us unique as human beings, the ability to weep is a good place to begin the list. To try to be someone who never weeps is, in a sense, a denial of one's own humanity. And maybe it's also, in a sense, the denial of our divinity, at least in the sense of our bearing the image of God. Maybe the right kind of tears are sacramental in a sense that they are a physical means by which we can experience a spiritual connection. If that sounds like a stretch, well, let Scripture stretch you. If you were to take a tour of tears through the Bible, it is to go on a long journey with many stops. You'll find people weeping and the stories of those who grieve and the poetry of the Psalms. You'll hear of God hearing cries like the cries of a dying baby, Ishmael, after his mother has left him because she can no longer bear to hear his tears herself. Or the cries of slaves in Egypt or the cries of Job You'll read stories of God weeping for his people 
Jeremiah says that God weeps because of the way Judah devastates the land and is unfaithful to him. You'll find prophets weeping on behalf of God. Jeremiah sees God's people refusing to listen and continuing to live in dysfunctional ways, and the prophet weeps bitter tears. And of course, as you heard in the children's sermon, you'll find Jesus weeping. This brings us closer to the passage I chose to read. During Lent last year, I spoke of when two of the greatest figures of Scripture both wept. You can find what I said as part two of the devotional series along the way on our YouTube channel. I told of a bend in the road that goes from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem. The bend is at the crest of the hill, and to turn on that crest is to suddenly have all of Jerusalem come into view. I've walked that road, and it is a dramatic experience. It is likely that at the bend in the road, perhaps standing on the same spot, two well-known figures of Scripture, many years removed from each other, both looked down on the city of Jerusalem and wept. One is looking back since he is fleeing the city, and the other is taking a first look since he is entering it. The first is King David, betrayed by his son Absalom, who organized a mob to dethrone his father and, if possible, kill him. In fleeing the city, the father does what he does again when Absalom dies in a battle that restores David to the throne. He weeps. A millennia later, Jesus comes to that same bend in the road. Now, Jesus is coming. He's not going. A mob is welcoming him to the city rather than trying to expel him. And he is seen as the leader of a rebellion, not the one being rebelled against. Yet David's moment and Jesus' moment are joined because each weeps for a city that has forgotten the ways of peace. Listen to Jesus' story as told by the Gospel of Luke. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when our enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The word of the Lord. David weeps, pursued by a mob. Jesus weeps, about to be welcomed by a mob that he knows is going to betray him. It's only a matter of time. Jesus will not lead a rebellion against Rome as the mob expects. And when this becomes clear to them, many who now welcome Jesus to Jerusalem with palm branches shouting Hosanna will be among those shouting for him to be crucified. But as I said, I spoke of this story during a Lenten devotion. Isn't that where this story belongs in Lent? Why speak of Jesus' tears during Advent? 
Why speak of tears at all in a season of anticipation of the birth of a child who is God among us, in a season when we remember an angel's announcement of good news coming to the poor, in a season of celebration and festive decorations? Why the tears? A good question. And believe me, I second-guess this particular passage being chosen to read. I chose to do it because tears do belong in the Advent season. I mean, ask any family who will be facing Christmas for the first time without a certain loved one. Or ask anyone going through a terrible time and for whom the decorations and festivity of the season are not a diversion, but come across as artificial as the lights on the tree. If Christmas is going to have any spiritual meaning at all, the good news of God's coming into our lives has to speak to their pain. The good news of the coming of God, the good news of a Savior being born, is not fully heard as good news unless it is heard also when we weep, and at times when we have cause to weep together. As to my choosing this passage, normally read at Lent, well, that might have been a mistake. To be honest, I shied away from another passage, a passage about tears that is normally read around Christmas. But the story of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem at the end of his life helps us understand the other story of tears normally read during the time when we remember the beginning of his life. It also is a story about a troubled Jerusalem and a king, a paranoid king, an insecure king. King Herod has an audience with foreign dignitaries, magi they are called. They come from the east, which means they traveled that same road that David and Jesus traveled, and they rounded that bend at the crest of the road where Jerusalem suddenly comes into view. They are headed to Bethlehem for a reason that interests Herod. He has heard that they are looking for a child, a descendant of David, who was himself born in Bethlehem. And this magi have heard a prophecy that this child, a descendant of David, will be one day a new David, a shepherding king who will gather the scattered flock of Israel. Now, perhaps if Herod were not so paranoid and insecure, he would welcome the possibility that there might be born the one who would one day deliver Israel out from underneath Rome's thumb. But Herod was not born in David's line. He's not David's descendant, so he can't claim lineage as his right to the throne. He is a king not because he was born to rule, but because he was installed on the throne by Rome. Herod's rule, while certainly providing him wealth and power trips, must benefit Rome most of all, or, well, what Rome gives, Rome can take away. That's what threatens Herod from above, but there's also a threat from below. That Herod is Rome's puppet inspires no devotion from the people Herod rules, and he legitimately fears that what once happened to David might happen to him. A mob is incited to overthrow him, and perhaps one day this child of whom the Magi speak, this child who is a descendant of David, is going to grow up and be the one to incite that crowd. Herod is a good enough politician to know that a prophecy 
can come true simply if enough people believe it will come true. So you can't let it get out of hand. You can't let the rumor spread, this rumor that the next David has just been born. I mean, it spread too far already, having reached the ears of foreign dignitaries. When he's with the Magi, Herod acts the part of the one who welcomes the possibility of a new king in David's line. He invites the dignitaries, after they find the child, to return to Jerusalem to tell him where that child can be found so he can go worship the one foretold. Well, they do go, and they do find the child. But warned in a dream not to return to Jerusalem, the Magi go home by a different way. Plan B. Herod orders all the children in the region of Bethlehem who are two years or younger to be killed. Matthew's gospel does not describe directly the weeping of those children's parents except to quote a prophet that joins those parents' cries with the metaphorical cries of Rachel, a mother figure of Israel weeping over the loss of people killed or taken at the time of the Babylonian exile. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. The tears of the parents of the children Herod killed are the kind of tears shed by parents of children at Columbine High, Virginia Tech, Newton, Connecticut, the Sandy Hook School, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, and now Oxford High in Oxford Township, Michigan. The cries of parents that cannot be consoled. In these kinds of moments of wailing, there's not much that can be said that will be heard by those parents as good news. At first, perhaps the only comfort for believers is that Jesus weeps with those who weep. But deep, real grief truly can be the beginning of healing. The valve can become the salve. We know that as individuals, don't we? We know that to grieve well is to face the reality of what is lost and what is wrong. It is to give up trying to rewrite the past or to force a future that simply is not going to play out. But eventually the valve can become the salve and one's focus over a long, hard journey can move to what might be and what can be. One walks through the shadow of the valley with God and finally gets to a better place where even happiness is possible. And I can tell you as a pastor that I've seen this happen many times Individuals who suffered great loss, individuals for whom happiness was impossible for, at the moment and for a long time, making it to the day when the weight of living becomes bearable again, even making it to the day when they are happy again. It has to start with the right kind of weeping, tears shed not of despair, but of longing and hope. Out of good grieving can come healing. Out of good grieving can come the determination and courage to make it to when things are better. And if our theological vision is wide enough, and if our faith is deep enough, 
then maybe we can believe that good news can come not only to individuals, but also to broken communities. As Jeremiah and Jesus can tell us, sometimes it's hard to break through. Sometimes it is impossible. When Jesus stands at the bend in the road and looks on Jerusalem, he knows that he's not going to be able to enter the city and in a day or in a week talk some sense into those who cling to this Herod mentality. This city that is so divided, those catering to Rome because that's really the only way those who insist that Rome must be overthrown, because really, that is the only way. A city where innocent people keep getting hurt in the power struggles. A city where Herod's plan works only 33 years after he thought it would, where a descendant of David is killed to eliminate any threat to the status quo. Maybe as Jesus did with Jerusalem then, we should be weeping about communities that forget the ways of peace. And since I mentioned the shootings, maybe we should be shedding tears over a country that cannot seem to find a way not to lead all developed countries in school shootings. When our tears are for the sake of others, they are sacramental, for we join in weeping for those for whom God weeps. They are a physical means of something holy breaking into human life. They start with the recognition of something that in God's eyes is wrong or is broken or lost forever. And then if we truly honor the tears, there can be planted not only a hope that it can be better than this, but maybe there can even be born a conviction that it has to be better than this. Our passage is telling us that such can be the case with Jerusalem one day. Such can be the case with communities and cities and divided nations. The right kind of tears know that it should be better and clears the way for a conviction that it needs to be better. Healing can come to communities as much as it can to individuals. To believe that is to believe precisely what Advent is trying to tell us, that God hears our cries and God comes near to us in Jesus. This is the way the Advent passage of Isaiah 9 puts it, and I'll paraphrase it briefly. Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. He is mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow, and there will be peace as it was meant to be under David, a peace with justice and right living. God's zeal is that this takes place. If we join our tears to God's, then we should also join our zeal to His. 
If we will weep over communities that are stuck and lost, maybe we can come eventually to discover some of the ways of peace so that in the future, innocence will be protected by the powerful and not sacrificed. Remembering a king who surrendered power rather than a king clinging to it. A king who sacrificed his life rather than taking life. A king who showed us a God who came as a child to be near us. That's a good place to start. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.